content of this podcast is provided as general informational purposes only. It is not intended for, nor should it be used to replace professional behavior intervention and advice. This is Sissy. And this is Susan, and we are Function Junction. Behavior matters. Behavior matters and transition matters. And more than transition, we have a wonderful friend who is a wealth of knowledge in the era of education, uh, Vicki Mitchell. And I'm so excited to have her on the podcast. Oh, me as well. Me as well. Thank you for being here, Dr. Mitchell. Vicki, I have to call you. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you so much. And it was such an honor to be contacted and invited to be part of the podcast because as you well know, y'all are not just dear friends, but colleagues, and we're aware of each other's work for a very long time. And it's that longitudinal picture that really, when you're looking at the outcomes of individuals with disabilities as they grow up and enter the adult world, you begin to realize how critical it is for all of us to work together to achieve that. Vicki, you have been a hero in our field and known nationally, if not internationally. And I think about, Sissy, I don't know about you, but I think there were two things that occurred many years ago. One thing that occurred was when the Texas Education Agency updated the autism supplement in 2007. And I met you, and I know Sissy, you, and you met, or maybe you didn't meet me at that time, but I know that was one of the early times that I met you. And then I also remember completing a full individual evaluation with you and Dr. Sherry. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember it like it was yesterday, sitting at lunch with y'all. That was so fun. And do you remember, was that before or after 2007? It was before it 2007. Was. It was. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. You could be you could be right. Well, you have been on our list of people that we want on the podcast and you have been so busy and I think things might be calming down for you. So we're lucky we have you and we're so grateful that you're here. Thank you. Yeah. I remember when we were working on the booklet for Region 4 about the changes that were coming from the autism supplement and I just happily was luckily a part of the group and it was a powerhouse of people in that room putting ideas down and you know and and making their contributions and when you started talking about transition really everybody stopped and listened because you were the authority for sure and many of us had not thought about just the level of impact that that transition has and the importance of it. I think we all knew transition is important because that's the overall goal, right? A, a, a 22-year-old right. who can go out into the world, make their way in, in whatever way that means. But you are just so gentle in the way that you talk about that. When you talk with a family about outcomes, for their loved one, you you never burst anyone's bubble. <laughs> you know, if they have these really high expectations, you don't burst a bubble, but you'll say, okay, let's definitely think along those lines. And how are, you know, what's our next step toward that goal? And I do think I learned so many things that were that make much more sense to talk to people when uh, they're 
trying to figure out what am I, how do I help my child become a productive member of society or get to do the things they want to do? Yeah, he, he loves golf. Do you, do you see him as a professional golf player? Well, no, no, I don't see him. Oh, okay. So we're going to be looking about something around golf then, right? Yeah, that would be good. And you just have such a pure hearted way of talking to people about what's the next step toward that overall goal for a child. Thank you, Sissy. Y'all, y'all are very sweet and kind. Thank you. No, it's not being sweet and kind. It's the truth. And you are, you're very, very patient and positive with this whole issue. And and I'm going to guiltily admit that during a time that you and I were working on an evaluation, I was not. And I know you're talking about that lunch. And I remember saying, do you really think the student can do that? And you were like, yes, yes, I do. And he did. And for the longest time, he was working for pay at a place that, you know, I've learned so much. And probably, Vicki, I don't know your entire career, but I do know that at one point you, well, I know you've been a consultant forever. And I do know at one point you were the transition specialist at Region 4. Yes, I yeah. was. I, yes, I, I've had quite a long career. I actually was a general ed teacher for 10 years in I secondary, think- junior high and high school. And that's when I became very interested in special education. And I thought, well, if I go back and take this one course that I saw in a course catalog, and it was the Adolescent and Learning Disabilities. And so I went one summer and I took that and I was hooked. And I went on sabbatical and got my master's and been in special ed ever since. And I've I've taught inclusion and resource. I've, I've taught life skills. I was what was called the vocational adjustment coordinator for a while where we helped students to find jobs. Then I became the transition specialist for a district. I've been a special ed coordinator in two different districts. And then the transition specialist at Region 4 Education Service Center. And one of the things I'm doing right now, uh, I'm at Sam Houston State University as the endowed chair in special education and also the executive director for the Garrett Center. And in 2018, we applied to become the state lead for transition for um, the Texas Education Agency. And we were awarded the state leadership for the Texas Education Agency Student-Centered Transitions Network. And so that that in and of itself has been great, working with the state agency and working with all of the 20 ESCs and trying to get the information out there, help students to be able to realize their dreams and parents to know how to support their kids and know what we know and do what we do because someday they're going to be taking that baton. Yes, and I remember the first, well, right when the Garrett Center opened and, you know, everyone was a buzz. And somebody that I we both know, and I don't remember who it was, she said, the Garrett Center website is like seeing into Vicky's brain. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it is. The resource that you could possibly want about transition is on that. And I know, you know, that you have written many, many articles and have many, many citations. And yeah. you do a lot with education and FBAs for adults, focusing on functional skills, which is yeah. an area that I hold dear to my heart. So that's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yes, behavior is so important. You know, I know that the audience for the podcast is a combination of parents of uh, children with disabilities, specifically autism, 
and of all ages, elementary and secondary, but also the practitioners, the, the individuals who teach and support and, you know, students, whether they're in the clinical setting or whether they are in the school setting. And, at, you know, one of the things that I would want to get across to your audience, regardless of who it is, is that there is a future. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the future is really dependent upon all of us working together. I can't say that strongly enough. Mm-hmm. I think of our system almost like an engine, not that I'm a technical person or an engineer, but you know that for an engine to work, all the pistons have to be firing. Yeah. You know, and so if you look at it from the perspective of the student and the parent, the educators, and we can even have that fourth piston, which is the people who are, you know, the the providers outside of the public schools, that, you know, you could have the the parent and the educator and the outside you know, specialists working together, and you've got three of those four pistons working, but if they, you've got one missing, the student isn't doing their part. Yeah. Or if the student and the parents doing their part, but the teacher this year isn't quite so stellar, you know, and you've got the outside people, then you're still missing a piston. You know, yeah. you, you've got to have all four of those pistons firing, but at a minimum, the three, you know, the, the, the big three, the, the student, the parent, and, you know, and the educator and, and to the parents, I would say, I wish that I could explain to you how important your role is, not just as a parent, but as a teacher. Oh, gosh. Yes. I, I think sometimes as parents, you know, we don't see ourselves as a teacher, but we do. We are. And there's there's so much that's possible that's out there, but life is given to us one day at a time as a building block. And so what occurs today makes tomorrow better and what occurs tomorrow makes the next day better. And it's those series of good days, one after the other, that makes it work. And it doesn't mean we're not going to have rainy days because we'll certainly have rainy days. But in the end, you know, we've got to understand that as a parent, I can't wait until my children are 16 or 21 years old to start addressing anything that might be a barrier. And and so for those parents who are out there and and you have children, you know, who are preschool, early childhood, special ed, elementary, those behaviors today, I know you're worried about them, but I want you to worry about them differently. I want you to look at that child in front of you and say to yourself if that throwing themselves down on the floor Uh or screaming at the age of three is driving you bonkers you've got to get with the school system and and you know make an appointment and say to them I want my child to get a job they're going to look at you like you're nuts because they're three (laughs) years old Mm -hmm. and I want to tell you behavior is not something that's a point in time. It is something that builds over time. And if it's not dealt with, it can become who you are, just like overeating, you yeah. know? And so as a result, you can't imagine the number of students, young adults, adults that I've worked with in their families that I'm looking at a behavior, I'm looking at an individual who can work. 
I'm looking at an individual who could go to post-secondary education, you know, even if it is not to get a degree, maybe it's to go to a 10 post-secondary ed for these wonderful programs that are being created for individuals with autism, developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities. But this behavior, mm-hmm. intellectually, they could do it. They can intellectually answer the questions, pass the test. They could perform whatever is asked of them in terms of equipment, technology. But the behavior prevents them from being accepted into the program or the behavior gets them kicked out of the program because in the adult world, there is no requirement that an individual be admitted or kept or served. But here's the aha that I want everybody to get is that when I am in that situation and I'm looking at school records and I'm listening to parents, I can tell you 90% of the time they that's in the school records back when that kid was in elementary. I'm listening to that parent's version of that behavior when that child was two and three years old, when that child was seven and nine years old. And nobody looked at it from the point of view that this is serious Because this can impact my child's ability to have the good life. Everybody's thinking, got to learn math, got to learn to read, got to learn to, you know, communicate. Well, not that those aren't good skills, but you know what? I know a lot of people who can read and do math and communicate very well and cannot get or keep a job. Yes. I remember probably when we started working on the autism supplement training, one of the things that you talked about a lot was looking at transition even from this the view of a, a three-year-old and how and I remember one time not too long ago that I was helping a district with their supplement and their previous supplement had said NA or non-applicable due to the child's age and you were like would you say that for your own child you know and one of the stories I tell them I'm sure I stole from you is that you know, my niece has two young children and she started planning for their adult life when she got pregnant and started a college fund and, you know, started thinking about what is my child going to do. And so, you know, when I see that on autism supplements, NA because of age, I think one huge light bulb would be to look at behavior. You know, our behaviors interfering with access to pre-K when they turn four and five and maybe that needs to be addressed on post-secondary outcomes. You know, Mm -hmm. and the other thing I thought of is I have a young learner that I'm working with right now who is doing okay at school. And I I don't think she's doing super great at home or in the community. And I think the parent is concerned because she has been told through adult agencies that she would she qualifies already, but she can't get in basically if she has interfering behaviors. Is that something you see? Absolutely. Absolutely, Susan. And, And it's actually worse than what it sounds. We have a a saying that it's not as bad as it sounds. I'm Mm. saying it's worse than it sounds. And here's why is because let's just take that scenario and expand it. Mm -hmm. If the individual wants to get a job and I've trained that individual and I know that they can do the job skills, Mm -hmm. we go out on the interview and I'm the support person on the interview if those behaviors occur during the interview, interview's over, no job. Interesting. If they're able to contain the, the behaviors during the interview and we get the job, if those behaviors were not dealt with, 
and there's replacement behaviors that are appropriate for the environment that's in place. At some point, those behaviors will occur at the new job and they will lose their job because employers will not take the risk of somebody getting injured or them injuring someone else or something happening to the equipment or what's owned by the business. So there's that. Yes. If an individual is accepted into post-secondary education because they're able to meet some requirements, then at some point, and we see it quite frequently at universities, the behaviors occur and then they become isolated from their peers because people aren't used to those behaviors. And then when they become isolated, um, and if the individual didn't have as part of their IEP health management and learn how to take their own medication, those medications are time limited. They begin to wear off and go away. And those behaviors, you know, and the person doesn't even realize that they're going downhill because it's time released. And then you have the same scenario where they drop out or get kicked out of school. If it's a program specifically designed for students with intellectual developmental disabilities, they usually have an interview process built into it. And their process is such that you don't typically even get past the interview process if Uh behaviors are a part of it. So that's that's school and that's work. Well, what if this individual who is aging out or exiting from the school system has some pretty significant behaviors at school and at home or just at home? What will happen is the parent is thinking in their head, and parents, this is so important for you to be really hearing me. Please, please, please hear me and get in touch with the Autism Society, get in touch with the ARC of the county where you're at, get in touch with family to family, parent to parent, and get to know the resources that are out there and talk to parents whose kids are five years older than yours, 10 years older than yours, 20 years older than yours, and learn the future. Learn what will work for you and what will work against you. Because what you will learn is that for that parent who is thinking, I don't know what's going to happen to my child when they get out of school. I guess I'll just look for a day program of some sort. I am here to tell you there are very, very few day programs that will take anyone with behavior problems. I mean, in in the city of San Antonio, there's one. And the waiting list is so long that, you know, that behaviors really become extreme by the time they get to the top of that waiting list. I don't think it's really any different for Houston or Dallas or any place else, but at least the big cities have one that you can get on a waiting list. So it kind of goes back to the start of our conversation about how critical behavior is. And, and it's important, parent, for you to think about it this way. When we have a three-year-old and and we feel like the behaviors are out of control and we feel like, my goodness, I should have done something when they were two. I should have done something when they were one. Well, here's what I'm going to say to you. It's never too late 
You know, because that three-year-old, if you envision them, those behaviors at nine years old, oh, that's not a pretty picture. Envision those behaviors at 16 or 21. That's really not a good picture. So what if your child is 16 and you're thinking, my goodness, I lost some time. No, start now, start now. And the way to start now is to, you know, call the school, tell them that you would like to have a meeting with the diagnostician if they're in special ed, that you would like to have an ARD meeting, you know, and that you want to start making sure that the IEP is dedicated towards improving the future for your child. And a critical thing is the behavior and that that's something is going to have to be done. And and if, if you don't feel that it's happening in a way that it needs to be done, contact the special ed department uh, for the the central office because the the people who are the district level transition specialist and the special ed directors, uh, they they want this to work. Believe me, they don't want unhappy parents and they want this to work. But you can also call the regional education service center and ask to talk to the special ed department there and ask to talk to the person who is over behavior, but but also don't forget that there are conferences meant just for parents as well as websites. Uh, one of my very favorite, uh, which you guys I'm sure are familiar with, is Spedtex, S-P-E-D-T-E-X dot org. I mean, Spedtex was designed for parents, and, and if you're not sure what to do to resolve the behavior problem, you can call Spedtex. Now, yes, they have a website, and you, yes, you can have a chat, but I will tell you, I like to personally call them because I like to be able to ask follow-up questions, and they will help you. There's also the Parent Resource Network, uh, PRN.org, and, and it is funded by a number of state agencies and advocacy groups, and it has a ton of resources for parents. And a big one for uh, parents and educators for autism is what's acronym is TSLAT. It's T-S-L-A-T dot org. TSLAT. Yes. yes, they have an amazing conference this summer at the end of June, I believe, with four world-known presenters. And Vicki, thank you for those resources. I'm taking notes because I want to recommend them in my record as well. Man, Susan, I could spend every day with Vicki Mitchell. I don't know about you, but she's a joy to talk with and a joy to be around. Just one of those rays of light out in the world. She is such a sweet lady and so smart. She, you know, we joke a lot about Gail Jeremy and whenever she opens her mouth, you just want to take notes. And I think Vicki fits that description as well. You just, yeah. I mean, I learned so much just from listening to her. She's so smart and she has so many resources and so many, so many helpful ideas, for families. And I've got a couple of adults, well, students who are adults who are still in school or students who are about to be adults that I I'm dying to talk with, but um, I thought we could have a question that kind of looks at that whole idea of parents and having adult children. And I spoke to a parent not too long ago who has a son who's 18 and he has a job, part-time job. And she had just gotten approved through her insurance for ABA therapy for Mm. her 18-year-old son and was asking me sort of what that would look like, you know, because she was familiar with real traditional ABA therapy, you know, for younger children, you know, that knee to knee kind of discrete trial stuff. And so the question is, if you were going to pursue ABA therapy for an adult who is on the spectrum, what would that look like? 
Choice A is discrete trial training and focus on maintenance. Choice B is naturalistic training with a focus on maintenance. Choice C would be naturalistic training with a focus on generalization. And choice D would be discrete trial training focusing on generalization. So let me repeat this. A is discrete trials focusing on maintenance. B is naturalistic teaching focus on maintenance. C is naturalistic teaching focusing on generalization. D is discrete trials focusing on generalization. Which one do you think would be the best approach for ABA therapy for an adult? Well, if I was taking the test, I would certainly be looking and thinking, well, I know maintenance is important and I know generalization is important. So, gosh, that's 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 going to be something I need to think about. And, of course, since we have been studying ABA, discrete trial has been critical, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the key to this question is we're talking about an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, although we may think of things sometimes in a very discrete trial format in terms of here's the stimulus, here's the response, here's the feedback, sure. we're probably not going to take that approach so much with an adult, right? We That's probably great. are going to be thinking about the naturalistic piece of things. So I would go with something to do with naturalistic teaching. There you go. Setting it up in the situation where it's going to happen, setting them up to get to practice it the way, you know, they would. And then when I also think about, yeah, maintenance is important. Sure. But that's kind of one of those things we, we do a check on. Are they still maintaining those skills? I probably need somebody to do that with me on, you know, diet. Are you maintaining those diet practices? Same. No, I am not. But, um, but if I'm thinking about helping an adult who has autism, I'm probably thinking about generalization. Do they have this skill and are they using it in all the places that we would like for them to use it? Um, probably not going to be doing people. maintenance probes with an adult. Yeah. And generalization, you know, if the students generalized it, if the class person has generalized it, then they have, I think maintenance is assumed. And so, yeah, generalization across settings, across people, across mm-hmm. materials, you know, even across, you know, if you're working at, a fast food restaurant, you have to be able to respond to, I want a number three with Diet Coke, as well as I want a cheeseburger fries and a Diet Coke or whatever. So yes, ding, ding, ding. The choice (laughs) that letter C, naturalistic teaching with a focus on generalization is the right answer. Well, everybody, we hope you enjoyed part one of Dr. Vicki Mitchell, and we know you will be looking forward to part two. So tune in next week and we hope you have a great weekend. We'll talk with you then. See ya. Bye guys.